This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This Is Hell, Reagan sucked. We all know that, right? President Ronald Reagan just blew. Okay, maybe that Trump supporter who called C-SPAN last night following the Republican National Convention in order to praise the president for his commitment to his family and more importantly warning voters here in the U.S. that if you vote for Biden, we'll have, and I quote, upside down burning crosses in all of our yards. How the Trump voter came to that conclusion is uncertain. But what is far more certain is that however they came to that conclusion, it's a real and frightening path of paranoia that is far from the road less traveled in today's politics here in the U.S. The New York Times front page has an article on the presidential race where they quote a Diana Schenkel saying there's so many people throwing down really inflammatory words on social media. And these inflammatory words carry emotions. It just pivots people to where they're not going to even tolerate someone for supporting that person. You're automatically put on trial and you have to testify why you believe what you believe. And that must be how Biden's voters feel when they hear call-ins on C-SPAN say that upside-down crosses are going to be filling our lawns if the Democrats win the White House in November. Problem is, Ms. Schenkel is not a Biden voter, but a Trump backer, and the hate-filled words she hears being thrown at Trumpers, like herself, are the words racist and xenophobic. So, while Trump's people fear a few future of crosses being set on fire that are, heaven forbid, not properly upright, Biden supporters call out racist and xenophobic policies of the Trump administration and assume those policies reflect his voters' racism and fear of the other. Fear of everything, frankly. That is, other than the rise of fascism. So how do we get to a place where our political divide is seemingly split between would-be upside-down cross burners on one side and xenophobic racists on the other? Well, it all started with Reagan, kinda. We'll find out how the roots of today's divisive politics can be found back in the heady days following Watergate during the 1976 presidential campaign and throughout the Carter administration when we have the return of historian Rick Perlstein, author of the new book Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick is the New York Times uh, is the author of New York Times bestsellers The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, and Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, which was also picked as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by over a dozen publications. And Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, which won the 2001 Los Angeles Times Book Award for History. In fact, Alex, I think we may have done an interview with him on that book as well. And so we're going to have to look in the really old archives. You're going to have to look in the really old ones to see if we have an interview with him from 2000, 2001. Uh, So that book won the 2001 Los Angeles Times Book Award for History. And Politico called Rick the chronicler extraordinaire of American conservatism, who offers a hint of how interesting the political and intellectual dialogue might be if he could attract some mimics. Find out more about Rick at his website, rickperlstein.net. Follow Rick on Twitter at Rick Perlstein. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what will we all be using as currency after the fall? 
what will we all be using as currency after the fall? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new black This Is Hell trucker's cap with our global This Is Hell logo in gray. You can check out the black This Is Hell trucker's cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways in which you can help completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, how are listeners answering this week's question from Hell so far? Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I know. You oh, sorry, I thought we were doing this at the end of the show. Oh, that's right. Uh, I, I, was, I thought that was starting next week. Oh, we can start next week. Okay. Jeff G., so what will we be all using as currency after the fall? What will we be using as currency after the fall? Jeff G. says, handies. Okay. All Jeff. right. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when I, uh, <laughs> what happens when I caught a good word. Uh, Pete V. says, bullets. <laughs> Thanks, right. Pete, for not saying my mom. Uh, Margie says, human bones. Andrew S. says, the one. Dan H. Sir Dan K. says, hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> nice. Uh, Fenrir W. says, after the fall, money in the state will be abolished. Okay. Gorilla G says buttons because no one can fix a zipper anyways. My dad one time, it was the offertory. So this is where you give the envelope for money during Catholic mass. They come by with this wicker basket and they pass it along and everybody throws money in. My dad took the money out of the envelope that was my grandmother's money, put it in his pocket and put a whole bunch of buttons inside <laughs> and then threw it back in the basket thinking that they would notice and he got in a whole bunch of trouble with the church and his mom. But who noticed? <laughs> the priest, he came over to the house to talk to him about it. Whoa, damn. Uh, Mika D says, cabbage rolls. <laughs> Jensen O says, ballpoint pens that still produce smooth, full-bodied navy blue lines. Power will go out or become inconvenient and permanent handwriting will become important. People will tire of making their own vine charcoal on the campfire and good secondhand pens will become even harder to find than they are now. They will become more scarce as time goes on, and they will dry out, making them appreciate making them appreciate as an asset, and therefore hoarding them will yield a solid interest rate. My old point was buttons do not work as currency with the Roman Catholic Church. That's all. That's the only point I was trying to make. Bradley A says <laughs> feces and cocaine that have traces of dollar bills on them. God, <laughs> that's great. Oh uh, yeah, that we, is we might fantastic. Have to stop there. Wow. Uh, Ronaldo M says weed. Damn, Chuck, uh, you know. Poor man's king all of a sudden over here. Uh, Courtney A says, toilet paper. Mm -hmm. And Krimsky K says, no currency, barter with a bit of butter. Again, we (laughs) will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Email us your answer, Facebook it to us via Messenger, tweet it at us. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. This week, Jeff's ready for action. Later. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. At the beginning of yesterday's show, I shared the first part of what will be a three-part triptych of my annual trip up north to an area that has become and probably always was Trump country. Who's kidding who? They were just waiting for an authoritarian with racist, sexist, fascist tendencies to come along and fulfill their wildest fantasies of permanently entrenched white privilege and supremacy. It was sobering to be reminded while on vacation that everywhere skulking, lying in wait was the specter of Trump and his anger-fueled supporters, and the last thing I wanted on vacation was anything sobering. Even in an idyllic, bucolic setting that harkens back to the innocence of childhood and nature and that childhood experience within nature, there it is, slinking about, prowling, waiting for the vulnerable and weak to drop their guards so they can be manipulated with fear and activated with hatred, which verges on violence, all provoking anger. 
as a political weapon and cause. I know the Trump crowd finds his dehumanizing of others intoxicating, but for me it's just a buzzkill. Frankly, telling me how much other people sucks, that just does not get me aroused in any way. And if one needs to be told that others suck to feel better about themselves, then one likely has bigger, deeper issues, far greater than the poor judgment of voting for Trump. While I am up north, I'm apparently surrounded by locals who do need to be reassured that others, that the other, is worse than they are, and those people deserve unfair and unequal treatment even institutionalizing that treatment if necessary in order to keep the other down where they belong, and the virus is making that class inequality of capitalism starkly evident. This year I actually heard family members, other than myself, pointing out the shortcomings of capitalism, which is something that never came up around the bonfire before, ever. It was like I was listening to a stone drunken rant from me 15 years ago, a rant where halfway through I realized I've lost the room, cancelled if you will, and I just needed to be honorable and do the courageous thing of slowly slipping into the shadows and going off into the night. There is no TV at the lake, never has been, likely never will be. There are no phones again, never has been, and hopefully never will. Of course, now with smartphones and hotspots, you can cobble together an online experience, but who the hell wants to look at a screen when you can look at a perfectly blue sky or one filled with stars that stretches into infinity? I mean, I'm telling you, infinity kicks Xfinity's ass. This turning back the clock on media leaves us with only newspapers, which we have to go a mile to purchase, and our outstate editions with the news from not the day before, not from yesterday, but a couple of days ago. There's also the radio. At the lake, the ambient noise of the radio broadcast of a baseball game can be heard in some of the cabins. This year, with baseball being played in front of no fans with only pseudo-players, sometimes supplanted by cardboard cutouts, the fans are, or some other simulation of there actually being an audience in the stands, with sound effects played through public address systems, replacing this crowd reaction to give the listeners the feeling that despite a global pandemic, everything's fine because we have baseball. The game just sounded... Desperate and sad, a feeble attempt by depressed people to wrap themselves in a blanket of global pandemic denialism, hiding under the covers in hopes that the big bad monster will soon go away. You can hear in the voices of grown-ass adults the pleas of children to get their games back. When they are presenting, when what they are presenting as baseball isn't baseball; it's a memorial to baseball. And if you thought me talking about baseball was boring, get ready because I'm now going to connect that horrible simulacra of baseball that is being foisted on fans with an episode of Star Trek from 1968 called Bread and Circuses. In that episode, the Enterprise tracks down a Federation starship that has gone missing, only to find that it has crash-landed on a planet that essentially has 1968 technology, and a coincidence that oddly repeats itself again and again on Star Trek. Quite a lot. Yes, where no man has gone before is apparently a universe filled with planets that all seem to have late 1960s technology. The surviving captain of the wrecked ship stumbled upon a planet that remarkably has 20th century tech, but with a still existing relic of Earth's past dominating the planet. Imperial Rome! The Roman Empire! Yeah, it makes no sense. But the society is geared around gladiatorial games that are depicted as fake, as staged like professional, professional wrestling, although with deadly outcomes. There, there's no audience members who might reveal the scripted aspects of the fights, but you do see the hands of a sound effects engineer manipulating controls that say, 
cheers and boos to simulate a crowd reaction and add reality to something that is otherwise very inauthentic and not really a sport. That's how I feel when I see or hear any sporting event under the virus. And after watching video games, sports competitions, replace sports on TV at the beginning of the pandemic, my trained brain can't help but see the similarity between the digitized crowds in video games and the absence of fans today. With all that, players playing in front of empty seats, professional sports playing in limited spaces and bubbles in only three cities, Orlando, Toronto, and Edmonton, isolating the players from others to reduce the chance of spreading the virus, players representing cities within which they no longer play any games, players not from those cities or even possibly the country the city they represent is in, with teams owned by billionaires who may or may not have anything to do with that municipality other than owning the team. The whole idea of being a sports fan of any local team becomes nothing more than a mirage, a very costly mirage to public coffers. I don't believe in these sports. I've lost faith in sports due to the virus. The virus has revealed the false gods of god of sports to me. That sense of an unreality that is being forced upon us to somehow comfort us with a level of normalcy as disturbing as any Skinner test. And the sounds of the ball game and the radio remind me the pandemic awaits. I was warned by family members that preceded me to the lake this year to avoid the market at the corner of the interstate and the highway where we usually exit as it was hosting an Unlock Michigan campaign rally and in doing so followed a quicker preferred route suggested by GPS, which took us along the edge of what is known as Dead Stream Swamp. And up until we took the faster route, we never knew there were people living in squalor next to Dead Stream Swamp in rusted out, no longer mobile homes, a variety of sheds that rich people would never call tiny homes, and Quonset huts cut down to smaller units that let's all hope are for storage and not human living because my guess is the summers get real hot in the swamp and real cold in the winter. Meanwhile, just on the other side of the swamp in front of the high-end butcher, bakery, produce store, and hand-scooped ice cream shop, the Unlocked Michigan campaigners were attempting to get enough signatures on on a petition so the gerrymandered state legislature can circumvent a popular vote or a potential gubernatorial veto just as I'm certain the Founding Fathers wanted, and reopen all Michigan businesses without masks or democracy or any safety protocol in the entire state. We also wanted to avoid that market because we heard the workers and most of the customers were not wearing masks, as we would find out later. Every store in the area had signs saying that they were requiring masks. However, citing the Fourth Amendment due to privacy concerns, if you were not wearing a mask, they would assume you have a medical condition allowing you to not wear one. That's right, every store mandated a mask per state rules, then offered an excuse to anyone who did not want to wear a mask, and then gave themselves an out for not being held responsible. It was like I was playing in a bubble back at our cabin on the lake, secluded and secreted away from the hordes of Trump followers surrounding me in every direction. I thought, even if I won the lottery, I wouldn't want to live here, despite my sentimental attachment to it. Our family visiting the same place together for 65 years, dating back to before I was born, that family constantly changing and becoming anew, and how every iteration seems to haunt the place like friendly ghosts welcoming you back to where everything began and always remains. Then I saw a sign, a sign that was manna from heaven, saving me from the frightening prospect of being encircled by those those whose fears fuel their racism and hatred, even if that was never their intention, still not recognizing how their exaggerated fears have infected every part of their worldview. That sign read... Welcome to the woods, 
but please leave your suburbs at home. The first thing people seem to do when they buy a place on the lake is immediately chop down all the trees, put in a chemically induced suburban lawn that surrounds a house that looks like it's right out of any subdivision outside any major city, completely changing the natural landscape for what one would assume attracted the suburbanites to the lake in the first place, replicating their first home and its landscaping, the home from which we all thought they were taking a break from, a vacation from, trying to get away from during their vacation from the suburbs. There are the trunk slammers who come up every weekend, jet ski around like maniacs all day every Saturday, take huge boats barely out into the water where you actually walk by 30-foot vessels sitting with their engines running in waist-deep water with speakers blaring to cover up any sounds of nature. You can't even hear the water on the hull of the boat. That's how loud the music is. And often the speakers are pointed not toward those on the boat, but away from them so everybody can hear their music but them. And it's not good music. Who really ever needs to hear any foreigner song ever again? Welcome to the woods, but please leave your suburbs at home. Yes, this sign was telling me that maybe, just maybe, I have kindred spirits out in the woods where so much of my growing up took place. I'd hope that if I did ever win the lottery and bought a place up north, maybe, just maybe, there would be other human beings who I may relate to and actually become friends. Maybe there are people who live up north who do not want to destroy the woods with off-road vehicles every weekend like the suburbanites who come up wearing camouflage do. Maybe there are people who live on the lake who aren't crazy about the suburbanites playing with their loud toys every weekend, buzzing by everyone from people trying to catch fish to families with children trying to enjoy a swim, yet they always buzz within close distance despite the lake being the biggest inland lake in the state with plenty of room for everyone. I finally had hope that maybe, just maybe, the paradise of my youth was possibly not the hotbed of fascism I was starting to believe it to be. So, this is hell or not, and tune in tomorrow to find out during tomorrow's final third part of my triptych of taking a trip up north. We'll discover whether my hope was misguided and what happens when I allow my fantasies to take hold, like so many have out in the sticks that I venture into each and every year. What happens when I, too, have an other I fear in a potentially exaggerated way? Coming up on This Is Hell, exactly how do we go from a corrupt president from the Republican Party being forced to resign his office to only a little over six years later electing a further right-wing Ronald Reagan to the White House? More of your answers to this week's question from hell. What will we all be using as currency after the fall? What will we all be using as currency after the fall? Send your answers in now via email, via Twitter, via Facebook, and have a chance at winning our new black this is hell truckers cap i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live stream and podcast host chuck mertz producing is alex jerry noam chomsky called this is hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly noam's gone insane this is hell nixon was too far right so in response the u.s voters selected jimmy carter as president in 1976 then with carter going too far left the country swung back toward conservatism in 1980 with ronald reagan that's the watered-down, really dumbed-down, idioted-down version of what happened. 
What really took place is far more revelatory about those times and ours. Here to take us on a guided tour of late 1970s politics returning to This Is Hell. Historian Rick Perlstein is the author of the new book, Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. You can find out more about Rick at his website, rickperlstein.net, and you can follow Rick on Twitter, at Rick Perlstein. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Rick. Oh my God, Chuck! <laughs> I feel like I'm at home. I just, I just, I feel I'm coming home, man. I feel like I just like slipped in like the most like warm, comfortable <laughs> bath. The darker you got, I guess. Can I? I got a okay. So I just did an interview. I won't name his name, but with an extremely prominent establishment figure. Okay. A TV interview that will appear on a certain network and. <laughs> It was hell. <laughs> it was 30 minutes of me trying to cleverly be simultaneously polite and sell my book and push back on his establishment consensus insistence that Reagan restored confidence to America and that the Democrats don't understand that people don't want raping and pillaging in the streets. And <laughs> it was very hard work. And um, I don't know. And I just like me and my wife just bought a lake cabin in the middle of Illinois. And we were really terrified that um, we would be surrounded by fascists. But our real estate agent started talking about how wonderful that Mary Trump is. And the sun broke over the horizon. And I just can't even tell you how happy I am to be here right now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so how do you enjoy your appearance on the Lawrence O'Donnell show? (laughs) <laughs> was not Lawrence O'Donnell. Damn it, damn it. I was thought I, I was trying. I was trying. You got it. You got to admit it. I spoke a, a, a colonial mansion that looked like the White House. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you, I, I can't even get, I, I, I just, you know, I mean, what can I tell you? I, I can't, um, I got to protect my brand, you know, and not, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know what you got to do is you got to start getting, you got to start getting uh, Rick Perlstein truckers caps and getting a whole swag shop at your site. That's what you need to be doing. I do have a swag shop. I have four items for sale. <laughs> Actually, my first book is no longer for sale because they ran out and the only new copy of Before the Storm is available for $950 on Amazon. <laughs> But supposedly they're getting a new one soon. Uh, so, yeah, that's the swag I needed to buy. Let's go dark, man. All right. So I, I wanna, want it darker. All right. So I, uh, I just want to start with a really general question, because following the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States in November 2008, we had guest after, after guest on our show saying that progressive Democrats needed to continue that momentum to pressure the new Obama administration to come through on things like universal health care, ending the war right. on terror. We also had guests who were concerned that if the so-called left pushed Obama too hard, he would end up, and we had a few guests say this, he would end up a one-term president like Jimmy Carter. The implication being that Jimmy Carter was pushed too far to the left, and that was why he was not reelected. Is it accurate to say that the left pushed Carter too far, bringing about an eventual okay. Reagan administration? Give me, give me the names and addresses of those people so I can hunt them down. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy Carter. Uh Jimmy Carter, uh, I, the way I put it is the Democrats managed to, you know, dominate Washington for decades um, on the principle, don't shoot Santa Claus, which basically meant, you know, use the might of the American economy and the the, the, the federal treasury to basically create programs uh, that build and support, you know, the American middle class. And uh, Jimmy Carter's 
determination as president seemed to be to plug Santa Claus in the gut. Uh, so, you know, the first thing he did, does when he's uh, inaugurated is in between, after he's elected, he's sitting there in Plains, Georgia and studying, studying how to be president after this campaign in which basically he's, you know, all things to all people. Um, and he studies the report of the Army Corps of Engineers about federal water projects. And he puts on his engineer's cap, his nuclear engineer cap, and he comes up with 50 projects that he decides are not economically rational. And he announces unilaterally without consulting anyone, including his own interior secretary, who learns about this when he gets off a plane at a governor's conference, met by angry governors asking him, uh, why Jimmy Carter is destroying their political careers. Uh, he cancels 50 dam projects. Um, and uh, with them, you know, all these jobs that go with building dams and all the patronage. And, and that was the beginning of four years of commitment to austerity and bite belt tightening and the conservative ideology that the reason we have inflation is that there's too much government spending uh, and, you know, retreating from supporting labor law reform and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, such that, you know, when the American working class goes to the polls in November of 1980, they have a choice between the guy who says uh, you're doing too well and the guy who says I'm going to give you a 30 percent tax cut. Um, so um, it's not quite the way uh, that particular I like to say that the people know seven or eight things about every presidential election and three, 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 three to four of them are wrong. That's definitely one of the wrong ones. Yeah, definitely. But it's, it, it's unfortunately when you hear like, I don't know, comedians or people like in a bar talking about the history of the Carter era, that's kind of where it falls. And you write Jimmy Carter would be the candidate, as you were just saying, for everyone. In his speech, he uh, feigned left, comparing Ford to Herbert Hoover, another, right. quote, decent and well-intentioned man who sincerely believed the government could not or should not, with bold action, attack the terrible and economic and social ills of our nation. He feigned right, saying when there is a choice between government responsibility and private responsibility. We should always go with private responsibility when there is a choice between welfare and work. Let's go to work. Then, and most importantly, he staked the claim as the candidate unconnect, unconnected to the corrupt legacy of Nixon. I owe the special interest nothing. I owe the people everything. Did voters project their hopes and their ideas of what change from Nixon Carter might bring about? Is that the same kind of projection that we saw when it came to supporters of Barack Obama? Did this set the foundation for that kind of projection of a politic who seems to appeal to everyone? Totally. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, Barack Obama, people projected that they were going to get like, you know, Hosea Bartlett from, you know, the West Wing, you know, and all the problems would kind of go away um, because we'd have this decent, honest man in the White House. Right. So there's this scene in the first chapter of the book, which actually you can read on Amazon. They just they just printed the first chapter so you can kind of. You know, try before you buy. Um, uh, there's a wonderful memoir by the guy who did Gerald Ford's TV commercials uh, about the 1976 campaign. He tells this story that I relate in the book. He goes to his first strategy meeting in the White House for Gerald Ford's upcoming campaign against Jimmy Carter. And he says it's in the man in the office of a man they only refer to as Mr. Cheney, who has a man-sized safe in the corner of his office. Uh, and... Uh, the, the pollster for, for Gerald Ford, it's a guy named Bob Teeter. Uh, he, he, 
he, he has come up with something he calls a perceptual map. And what this perceptual map consists of is a series of kind of clear acetate sheets uh, with scatter plots on them. And each plot represents, you know, an individual, individual poll voter, but each sheet is a different voting block, right? So there's literally people who are for gun control, people who are anti-gun control, you know, people who are uh, liberal on race, people who are conservative on race, you know, uh, labor, people in labor, people in business. And he just lays these sheets one over the other. And this like, in this kind of cloud of dots, you know, it's all converges away from Ford and qu- toward Jimmy Carter, right? So he ba- he manages Jimmy Carter to get elected by basically saying very little about what his policies were going to be and what he was going to do. So when he suddenly appears in the White House and, and basically makes it very clear that his fundamental idea about how to fix what's, what's wrong with America is to go back to an attitude like it's World War II and we all need to kind of sacrifice and plant victory gardens, it's a complete shock you know, to the American people who have completely projected you know, their own ideas about who this guy was, right? I mean, the evangelicals flocked to him and by 1980, they consider him the devil, right? Just to take you know, one example. Uh, that's a you know, terrible way to govern the country because when you govern, you have to make decisions. And when you make decisions, you have to anger one side or another. And when everyone thinks you're on your side, he just kind of serially uh, alienates one constituency after another. Um, and uh, the way he kind of tried to kind of bull through this contradiction was by a politics of symbolism. You know, uh, whether it was, you know, selling the White House yacht you know, or, um, you know, putting in front of the cameras his daughter's uh, lemonade stand, this idea that he was this kind of ordinary, sincere, you know, uh, yeoman farmer, you know, Um, and the media just like kind of picked him apart, picked each one of these kind of uh, stories apart one by one, always uh, bashed him for not uh, expressing enough austerity. Uh, So by 1980, he's that, like you know a terrible economy he's promising to increase the military budget by 20 percent so you know uh ronald reagan attacks him from the left <laughs> during the one debate uh saying he's too militaristic so if you want to kind of choose a military uh, a militarist you know on the on, uh, on the ballot you know the following tuesday are you going to choose the guy who says you know you have to tighten your belt or the guy who says he's going to give you a 30 percent tax cut and that 30 percent tax cut is going to create a miracle of loaves and fishes and, you know, heal the American economy and cause such massive economic growth that nothing is going to have to be cut at all. So what explains why this kind of candidate who is created through ideas that are around marketing, are around focus groups, what explains why this lack of a success with Jimmy Carter when it comes to, okay, I'm just this regular guy, but the media picks it apart. I'm this person for everybody, but the media picks it apart. And so by the time he's running in 1980, he hardly has the popularity that he did in 1976. So why would that continue as a political start strategy of any Democratic Party when it seems like it could be something that could be easily dissected? Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of like the, they, they, they forget nothing and learn nothing, right? I mean, it's really interesting that, you know, every subsequent Democrat, you know, seems to buy into the myth that uh, the Democrats are this kind of profligate tax and spend party, and they're going to be the ones who prove them wrong, you know, after uh, they inherit massive budget deficits from the Republicans. So, you know, 
uh, Michael Dukakis, you know, stands up there at the 1988 convention and says, this, this election is about competence, not ideology. Michael Dukakis is the guy who promised to run the state of Massachusetts like a bank, right? Uh, and then in, you know, uh, 1992, you get, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton saying, you know, the age of big government is over. And then you have, you know, Barack Obama, you know, talking about a grand bargain on social security. And this happens again and again and again. Uh, but even during the 1970s, you get Democrat consultants complaining that no one is giving Jimmy Carter any credit for the austerity he's proposing, and they're still acting like Democrats are the tax and spend party. So partly I blame, you know, the sort of um, kind of knuckleheaded idiocy of the media, which kind of like so reifies these narratives. That's what I was kind of fighting against when I was on you know, TV with this guy, um, as if they're, you know, reality and not Republican talking points. Uh, so partially I blame them. Uh, partially, I think I blame the donor class of the Democratic Party because certainly, you know, saying you're going to wring out inflation by cutting social programs uh, is great for people who have, you know, market positions in bonds and things like that. You know, that's what Billy, that's what Jimmy Carter said. I mean, I, that's, did I say Jimmy Carter? I meant Bill Clinton. That's what Bill Clinton said. Um, he, you know, he 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 had this. He had he ran. He wasn't like. Uh, Jimmy Carter, by the way, he was very specific about what policy he was running on. He was going to put people first. He was going to pass a $50 billion stimulus. He was going to pour money into the cities. He was going to pour money into education. And then Alan Greenspan sits him down and says, you know, if you spend too much money, you're going to crowd out private investment and, uh, you know, the bond market will collapse. And this is in one of um, Bob Woodward's books. He says, I'm going to, um, I'm going to have to like, you know, break my promise and sell out my program because of a bunch of effing bond traders, right? But, you know, he does it. Um, so that's 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 our beloved Democratic Party. Did uh, this artifice that was created of Jimmy Carter, did this allow for the rise of Reagan over the next four years? Did Carter's campaign normalize artifice and Reagan was just better mm. artifice? That's interesting. Um... I, there was a really interesting paradox that I try and get at in that first chapter, in that um, the whole artifice thing is very strange and paradoxical, in that the post-Watergate media, everyone wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein, right? Everyone wanted to kind of like find some scandal to bring out a president. So what they did was they like elevated the most picayune things to, to scandal, right? It did not, you know, increase transparency in, uh, in, uh, in government and, and did not, you know, kind of create uh, uh, a media class that was better at explaining how the world worked. It just kind of created a more kind of shallow uh, scandal obsessed culture in which the scandals became the artifice. Right. So simultaneously with this, um, our artifice is increasing. You have political consultants bragging about their skills uh, at artifice. You have reporters reporting uh, these political consultants bragging about their skills in artifice. And yet at the same time, at least in the, in, in the case of Jimmy Carter, the artifice works. <laughs> it doesn't work for Gerald Ford. He has his own artifice. He, he, wears, a, he wears a sweater on the campaign trail too, right? Uh, he has this wonderful campaign song, Marching Band, I'm Feeling Good About America, right? Um, so I think that was just like the, the direction things were going. I mean, media politics, TV, I don't think there was, you know, I think this whole artifice thing was kind of an unstoppable train. 
But I think that what en it ends up doing, this kind of paradoxical situation, is it becomes, it creates a more uh, alienated uh, um, electorate that um, basically sees politics as more and more artificial, right? So one of the things that happens like all through the years of this election is you get fewer and fewer voting. There's just massive apathy. And one of the things that, and this is a really kind of uh, circuitous answer to your question, but one of the things that happens when there's more voter apathy uh, is that makes it a lot easier for you to win elections with fewer amounts of people, right? So if you kind of motivate the base with kind of um, panic, which the Republicans do, it's a lot easier to spe win, especially these small turnout primaries, which they do with kind of like uh, pro-choice, new right, you know, kind of Christian right zealots. And it's a lot easier to win some of these Senate elections in places like, you know, North Dakota, where George McGovern loses his election in 1980, in places like Idaho, where Frank Church loses his election in 1980, all because um, the National Conservative Political Action Committee which is um, this new right, uh, basically front group that uh, pools money uh, to do uncoordinated uh, issue ads uh, against Democratic incumbents, accusing them of, you know, like um, uh, letting the feral hordes kind of rape our daughters in the streets. And the guy who runs uh, the National Conservative Political Action Committee is this very handsome, mustachioed, uh, new right figure. Uh, named Terry Dolan, who, by the way, as he arises into the stratosphere of this movement, completely based on sowing panic about homosexuals recruiting our sons, dies of AIDS 10 years later because he's, he's gay. And he says to the press, again, people bragging about their artifice, that the great thing about these political action committee uh, ads is that the candidate we support, um, we can lie through our teeth he brags about it, and the candidate we support stays clean. So a lot of that, you know, is able to work because the public is so apathetic because they see so much false artifice. Uh, I'm not sure that's the answer you expected, but um, I think that's one of the one of the things that emerges from this book. You and tell one of the things that you know kind of relates to you know the politics of our time in that uh, apathy really uh, empowers a politics of fear because it lowers participation. Right. That's what I was going to ask you is, uh, so, you know, how different is that political apathy of that era to what the media applies to millennials today? Is political apathy a label the media just right. always applies to young people, rightly or wrongly? Or is that uh, political parties simply don't offer young people what they want, whether it was the 1960s or the 2020s? Actually, I'm going to zoom over to um, Moscow and talk about Putin uh, and talk about how um, a big part of sort of like how Russia tries to kind of degrade democracies everywhere is by um, this is what they try and do with the you know the kind of propaganda on Facebook and that sort of thing is kind of seed a narrative that everyone's dirty, right? Uh, that you know politics is completely corrupt and that you know in the case of America the Democrats are just as corrupt as the Republicans. You know that was the whole Hunter Biden narrative, not completely Russian sown, but you know definitely the Republicans you know kind of went with that one. And if you, you know, if you can just convince everyone that people that uh, everyone's rotten, it's just a way to kind of degrade democracy in the first place. And I think that, yes, I think young voters are particularly sensitive to this because they live their lives on social media. And I think the Democrats are definitely um, 
complicit with this problem uh, by not uh, giving young voters uh, something to latch onto. I actually wrote, co-wrote uh, an op-ed in the Washington, excuse me, a Washington Post. I don't know if you saw it uh, with a guy named a young uh, analyst named Will Stansel in Minnesota, talking about how um, young uh, insurgent. Uh, candidates and politicians in the Democratic Party were completely shut out of speaking slots at the Democratic Party. And instead, not only did you get these, you know, kind of superannuated Republicans like uh, like Kasich, but you got overwhelmingly older figures in the party. And, you know, this is kind of nuts because every marketer knows that if you hook someone when they're young, you might have their loyalty for, you know, decades to come. You know, so even though young voters don't vote as much, their loyalty is worth so much more because it can kind of pay you dividends 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the future, right? Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, kind of uh, reluctance to um, speak to the ideological concerns of younger voters who have completely been screwed by neoliberal capitalism, right? Uh, and, you know, they're overwhelmingly for things like Medicare for All and free college, college which, you know, the 90-year-old running for the Democratic nominee, uh, Demo you know, as a Democratic nominee, you know, uh, is, uh, shall we say, reluctant to embrace. You also mention alienation as a political strategy. You said a former or a Ford uh, campaign memo worrying on the cusp of the general election that the marketing uh, genius who they're working with, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Cadell, is a generation... They lamented Pat Cadell, yes. Is he died it... at Trump. Right. Is a generation ahead of most other technicians. No one has yet devised a system for protecting a GOP incumbent from the Cadell style alienation attack. Why was that alienation attack so successful? And does it continue to this day? Was this the beginning of alienation as a political strategy or had that been going on for quite a while? It's just that he, you know, pumped it up on steroids. Well, so Pat Cadell was. He wasn't trying to sow alienation. He was trying to um, create messages for his candidates that promised to sell alienation, right? So Pat Cadell, <laughs> uh, he uh, was, in 1968, I'll tell the whole story because it's kind of fascinating. He was a high school student who was obsessed with baseball statistics and kind of, kind of into politics. Uh, he was originally from Massachusetts, but he was living in, in uh, with his family in kind of the the panhandle of Florida, which is basically like, you know, the South. It's basically like Alabama. And for a high school math project, he does a survey to see who people want to vote for uh, in the 1968 election. And he finds all these people who say that they're either for Robert F. Kennedy or George Wallace, right? Which ideologically makes no sense. I mean, when, when, when George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door, it was you know, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who, who he was defying, right? Um, but the reason he discovered was that they, like both Kennedy and Wallace, because they seemed to be kind of badass dudes, right? Who uh, didn't care what people thought of them and uh, that they made them feel like they were fighters who were on their side. And he realized that uh, issues are not really the most important things that people vote for. People vote for how candidates make them feel. And uh, the paradigm he began developing as a pollster was ways to kind of measure and craft messages around uh, the uh, idea that politics is rotten and dirty 
and that candidates should run against politics in Washington itself. And his first big success, he was a pollster for um, George McGovern, and he did really well with him in the primaries, but not, of course, in the general election. But his big success in 1972 was a 29-year-old kid named Joe Biden, who he instructed not to mention his opponent's name, but just to say that he was voting against Washington. Right. And then um, Jimmy Carter discovers him in 1974, and he helps come up with these focus groups to kind of make things like the peanut, the key symbol of the campaign. And his big triumph in 1976 with Jimmy Carter is in the Florida primary. And Jimmy Carter is in a showdown against George Wallace, the very guy who Pat Cadell, you know, came to politics to try to figure out. And George Wallace's old slogan whenever he ran for governor or president was send them a message and the them was kind of the northeastern pointy-headed snobby elites right send them a message uh that you know we're going to make a great make america great again and you know the same kind of trumpy stuff and jimmy carter thanks to pat cadell came up with an even better message he said don't send them a message send them a president you know you really want to stick it to the yankees will elect one of us which was a really great way of talking about that whole all things to all people thing because when when Jimmy Carter won the 1976 Florida primary against George Wallace by basically out, out George Wallace and George Wallace, liberals decided that here was a liberal who could defeat a Southern reactionary racist. And that's why they embraced Jimmy Carter as a liberal. Uh, he became very popular in New York. Uh, he became uh, the he vanquished all the other liberal contenders like, um, I don't know, names no one remembers anymore, like um like, uh, 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 I can't even remember them myself. Mo Udall, Scoop Jackson, Thank come you. on. They Mo were... Udall, right. <laughs> Mo Udall, too funny to be president, Mo Udall. Exactly. Thank you. I've been doing this all week, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, buy my book. You, you, you're right. Uh, Reagan had challenged Ford for the nomination all the way through the convention, something unprecedented in the history of the Republican Party. Then critics charged he sat on his hands rather than seriously campaign for the ticket in the fall. With Reagan's support, do you believe that Ford could have beaten Carter? And why wasn't Reagan just then dismissed by the Republican rank and file as a sore loser, someone who's not a team player? Um, he hundred hundred percent Ford would have won if he could have won Mississippi and Texas, which he lost by very slim margins, which were places that you know worship Ronald Reagan. Uh, he he would have had enough electoral votes to beat Jimmy Carter. Uh, why wasn't he rejected? Because the Republican rank and file didn't like Ford because he was seen as a you know liberal quizzling sellout of the you know moderate Wall Street Republicans, and that Ronald Reagan was. You know, the guy who was going to restore America to its, you know, former, formerly glorious white glory, right? Um, almost immediately, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, is beginning to campaign for president in 1980. And he's doing it by giving speech after speech after speech after speech to the Republican rank and file all over the country in which he's just kind of feeding the base, you know, the kind of red meat he had since the early 1960s. You're right that the uh, epidemic of political apathy spread particularly quick, uh, thick among the young. During the insurgent 1960s, the notion of universities as a seedbed of idealism was accepted as a political tru truism for all time. No longer. University provost explained that he was seeing a new breed of student who is thinking more about jobs, money, and the future, just not society's future. College business courses were oversubscribed, but politics 
Watergate taught them not to care, a high school civics teacher rude. How much then is neoliberalism, if you will, the outcome of Watergate in Vietnam proving to voters that politics do not work and therefore a privatized solution guided by profit, not any notion of a civil society, must be found? Gee, I was I was going to talk about how later in the book I write about Animal House. <laughs> <laughs> that basically, uh, the, the, the Animal House is really interesting because it's one of many, 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 many movies that become popular right around then uh, that harken back to the period immediately before Kennedy's assassination this, is this kind of golden age. Like in, in Invisible Bridge, I write about uh, The Exorcist. And how after the daughter is rescued from the, from Satan, which is something that women families literally were trying to do all over the country, was rescue their young daughters from the snares of Satan. You know, kind of. I said literally, but I mean metaphorically, right? At the last, the last reel is a young Reagan, coincidentally named Reagan, and her mom, uh, the liberal actress who's based on Shirley MacLaine, dressed in identical uh, Jackie Kennedy outfits, right? And then there's um, uh, uh, American Graffiti which takes place in, you know, like 1962, 1963. And then there's Animal House, which takes place in 1962. And all this, and then Superman, which is all about what happens when Superman leaves, you know, America. Uh, he leaves Norman Rockwell America to go to the Fortress of Solitude and learn how to be Superman and then comes back in 1978, having completely skipped the 60s. And that, I say that nostalgia was his superpower. So this idea that if we could just kind of return to this pre-lapsed area and pre-1960s reality, was just absolutely dominant in popular culture. Uh, and, you know, like our, our good friend Steve Bannon says, culture is downstream from, I mean, politics is downstream from culture. You know, things happen in culture first before they happen in politics. Uh, and, you know, I say that people were voting for Ronald Reagan at the box office before they were voting for him at the ballot box. Uh, so what was your question again? <laughs> Uh, how much is neoliberalism, the outcome of Watergate in Vietnam, proving to voters that politics do not work and therefore a privatized solution guided by profit, not any notion of a civil society must be found? Wow. Uh, I got to put on my thinking cap. Yeah, that one. see, I told you. <laughs> no, you know, I actually, um, yeah, I think that the kind of the general sort of sense that something is wrong, we have to try something. And, uh, you know, what we tried before doesn't work was so prevalent in the 1970s. And that was uh, in a kind of a shock doctrine kind of, you know, uh, fashion, this kind of Naomi Klein uh, fashion is how uh, corporate propagandists take advantage of, uh, that's what they take advantage. Uh, and yeah, basically sell the idea that, well, government screwed up, so why not try you know, privatized solutions. And a really excellent example of this is I read about this really kind of cunning uh, lobbyist uh, who uh, his name was um, his, his, uh, Charles Walker. I'm forgetting everything. I've been doing that. This is my fourth interview today. Uh, Charles Walker uh, was this uh, corporate banking lobbyist who decided he was going to do a public relations campaign to persuade the American people. And this is before Reagan, this is like in 1978, uh, that the, the, the answer to all of America's economic woes and the reason everyone was kind of losing their job and inflation was going through the roof and, you know, Arabs were, you know, having their way with us was because um, was because corporate taxes were too high. 
And if we could only uh, lower corporate taxes, we would just unleash the the animal energies, of the economy, and everyone would trickle down, and everyone would be prosperous. And he hires people to write op eds. He hires Sam Irvin, the Watergate hero, speaking of cynicism, to um, testify before Congress, uh, and then and then publishes his congressional testimony uh, as an op-ed without revealing the fact that he's working for this lobbyist. Uh, there's literally um, uh, uh, cartoons that they publish in newspapers. It's it's a full bore kind of a Goebbels-style propaganda campaign, such that by the time uh, Jimmy Carter is trying to honor his uh, campaign promise to reform the tax code, something like two-thirds of Americans agree with pollsters who ask them, uh, if corporate taxes are too high. They literally kind of hornswoggle the American people into agreeing that uh, the problem is that big business is paying too much taxes. And so the tax bill that Jimmy Carter reluctantly, to his credit, signs in October of 1978 gives all its benefits to the rich. Uh, we basically have a supply side tax cut, you know, uh, two and a half years before Reagan is inaugurated. Uh, and that's all um, basically corporations taking advantage of, um, you know, the, the, the fact that the public is just completely uh, at sea about how to solve these economic problems. And they do a better job. They do a faster job. They do a more cunning job than uh, the Democratic Party, which is kind of diving headlong to this solution of austerity. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a lot of support from politicized, uh, politically active, suddenly Christians, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention. Hallelujah. So did Jimmy Carter then activate the Christian politics that would become supporters of Reagan in 1980 and 1984 and the Republican Party beyond? Can we blame the Christian right? Is it all Jimmy Carter's fault? It's kind of wild, right? Uh, he... Um let me talk about the Southern strategy. We all know what the Southern strategy is with Nixon. The idea was you'll kind of weaponize the racism of Southerners in order to elect Republicans, right? But after Jimmy Carter is elected, people are like, the summer Southern strategy is over. All the Democrats need to do is nominate a Southerner and all the Southerners will vote for him out of you know regional loyalty. You know, Let's not send him a message. Let's send him a president. And Jimmy Carter is an out and proud Southern Baptist, but he's a traditional Southern Baptist. And Southern Baptism has been very adamant since it's founding in the 19th century uh, that you don't get involved in electoral politics, that that is, um, you know, you keep your you keep your eyes on the heavens above. And modern Southern Baptists, by the time of Jimmy Carter, um, even if they're involved in politics, they they don't believe in bringing their faith into the public square, which is almost inconceivable to us now. So even though Jimmy Carter is a Southern Baptist, who appeals to Southern Baptists as a Southern Baptist, he's very adamant that he's not going to he's not going to basically use his religion to make policy. And one of the great paradoxes, one of the great ironies of this story is uh, one of the big strange monkey wrenches in the 1976 election is that Ronald uh, that Jimmy Carter happens to explain this doctrine that he's not going to, as he put it, be breaking down people's doors if they're fornicating. He's not going to bring his religion into the public square in an interview in Playboy magazine. <laughs> um, and because he gives an interview to Playboy magazine, uh, 
uh, and because he says, uh, yes, I've lusted in my heart many times, but God forgives me. In other words, giving a straightforward explanation of Christian doctrine of sin and redemption, he is punished by the Christian right. And people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson uh, campaign against him. Uh, Pat Robertson's a Pentecostal, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell's a Southern Baptist. And so we begin this kind of long march of the politicization of Southern Baptists and Christian evangelicals quite explicitly. And they enter the public square literally with preachers as precinct captains. They talk about, we're going to set up precinct meetings along the model of Bible studies. And so by 1980, uh, the moral majority is formed in 1979 with Jerry Falwell as its figurehead. Uh, Jimmy Carter is a false Christian. He's a Christian in name only, according to these guys, because, you know, he supports the Equal Rights Amendment, because, you know, he had an aide who hosted gay activists at the White House, um, because he uh, supported Roe versus Wade, even though he um, he came out for the Hyde Amendment. So he kind of that was one where he kind of split the baby in half and lost both parts of the baby. Uh, so the rise of the evangelicals in politics behind Ronald Reagan is, you know, absolutely terrifying because a lot of these preachers are former segregationists. You know, I quote a sermon by Jimmy Jerry Falwell in 1958 when he first started his TV show in which he said that the civil rights movement was a Moscow plot and uh, the Bible commands us to, um, says God set the, sets the bounds of our habitation. That means segregation is a sin and that the problem with the Supreme Court is that they don't read the Bible. So he's literally kind of full-bore segregationist. That's how he becomes popular as a preacher. But by the late 1970s, they're not segregationists anymore, but they transfer that same hate, that same eliminationist, almost murderous rage at homosexuals. Jerry Falwell says, you know, a homosexual is someone who will just as soon kill you as look at you. You know, the second most powerful Christian preacher in the um, moral majority is this guy named James Robeson. And he goes on TV in 1979 and he says uh, he has police sources telling him that uh, gays are recruiting young boys and murdering them. So literally you have this kind of QAnon conspiracy theory about gays. And of course, Ronald Reagan speaks to a big moral majority rally in August 22nd, 1980. And he says, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And that, you know, solemnizes the marriage that we see uh, to today with, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsing, <laughs> um, endorsing Donald Trump in 2016, probably because Michael Cohn was blackmailing him about his threesome <laughs> with the pool boy. Uh, this is why I love having you on the show, Rick. And we've only skimmed the very tiniest, tiniest surface of this book. And Rick, if there's any way in which we can have you back on the show in the next few weeks to continue our discussion on this book, uh, we were, oh, we're only talking about the beginning of it. Maybe we could talk about the end of your book and then everybody else can be buying the middle of your book to check it out. We've been speaking with historian Rick Perlstein, author of the new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. You can find it at Rick's website, which is Rick rickperlstein.net and you can follow rick on twitter at rick perlstein one last question for you and as always it's the question from hell the question we hate to ask you hate might hate to answer our audience is going to 
hate your response. I saw a lot of people on social media shocked by the tone of the Republican National Convention and claims made of the election being stolen by the Democrats using the pandemic to get their radical leftist candidate elected and the entire country becomes Portland. Is that tone any different from what you were hearing and what you've chronicled from 1976, from 1980? How unprecedented is this extremist language at the Republican National Convention? Uh, it's uh, the same script they've been following since the 1970s. Uh, the big difference is back then it was working. So what to you explains Trump critics who see him as completely unprecedented? And, and how does the, you think that kind of view affects their worldview when it comes to politics and understanding conservatism? Um, wow. Why are, why are pundits uninformed and, and historically, <laughs> uh, historically ignorant? Uh, you know, I don't know. (laughs) And that is probably the best answer to the question from hell we have ever received, especially because it was in Latin, which I really appreciated. Rick, it's always great to have you on the show. I'll be bugging you in the near future to have you back on to continue our discussion about this book. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bring you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is what will we all be using as currency after the fall? The person with our favorite answer wins our new black This Is Hell truckers cap with our global This Is Hell logo in gray. And Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell or do you want to just get the hell out of here? Uh, what will we <laughs> be using for currency after the fall? What will we be using for currency after the fall? Fall. Max I says, gas, ass, or grass. Mm. Astrid N says, our souls. Sebastian W says, MAGA hats. Joshua L says, depending on how apocalyptic it is, I'm betting on Twinkies. What will we be using for currency after the fall? Stephen S says, memes. Uh, March W says, small rocks, wood, and ducks. Uh, Mark S says, this time of year, zucchinis and tomatoes. Andrea J says, sexual favors or cigarettes. Uh, Owen JG says smiles. <laughs> uh, Wally R says double stuff Oreos. Eva M says our wits and drugs. <laughs> Fabio L says e-girl counters. Nice. Chris L says dick pics. <laughs> Sebastian M says we're going back to bartering. I'll give you 12 nine millimeter bullets for that dose of insulin. <laughs> Craig S says souls. And Luis M says I'd be happy with falafel actually. By the way, Twinkies can't be the currency after the fall because after the fall... They don't survive. The only thing that survives is snowballs, and everybody knows that. Again, email us your answer to Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com, Alex at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com. Post them on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash ChuckAtThisIsHellRadio. DM us via Twitter at ChuckAtThisIsHellRadio. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. This week, Jeff's ready for action. Later. Thanks to our guest, Rick Perlstein. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing... Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, Wade Davis, the anthropologist, will be on to talk about his big Rolling Stone piece, The Unraveling of America. Tune in tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to not only hear our guest, but to find out if you've won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Merritt's producing Alex Jerry. Thanks to Rick. Thanks to Alex. My most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This 
is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>